0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This Father's Day, give Dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning morning. every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details.
2: so much history on television, even when it's about nasty and violent things. There's a kind of nice fairy tale, nice bedtime story about the whole thing. It's a long way away, dear child. It's not going to hurt you there, there, there. We've got over all that, haven't we? We've got the the, the welfare state and quantitative easing. There's nothing to worry about. I don't believe that. And hence, the wish to disturb.
1: That was David Starkey talking to us about his upcoming BBC Two documentary on the Reformation.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
1: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. We've now almost arrived at the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, which kicked off the European Reformation, one of the pivotal events in the continent's history. The anniversary is being marked by several programmes across BBC television and radio over the next few weeks. Among the highlights is the BBC2 documentary, Reformation, Europe's Holy War, presented by David Starkey, who is of course one of Britain's best-known historians. I paid a visit to David's London home a little while back to discover his views on Luther and the religious upheavals that came in his wake. And we also spoke about the story in England, where Henry VIII's marital problems, a decade later, would lead to a dramatic turnabout in the country's systems of belief. How much do you see the Reformation as the work of one man, as in Martin Luther? I think the
2: Reformation would not have taken the form that it did if it hadn't been for Luther. Luther is one of those... I'm not an absolute believer in the great man theory of history, but great men do exist and they shape things and they do it for a reason. They, of course, operate in circumstances that are favourable. What is surprising about Luther is... That he is surprising. Everybody says this tiny little town in East Germany, Wittenberg, the anniversary that's coming up now this October, the nailing of the 95 theses allegedly on the church door. It may well have been the equivalent of the university notice board. If you've ever been to Wittenberg, you wonder how the hell anything ever happened there. It. Uh, it makes the town that I was born in in the north of England, Kendall, look positively metropolitan. It's in this enormous plain to the southeast of Berlin. Nothing has ever happened around it. Nothing ever will happen apart from this one thing. And it's one of these extraordinary coincidences of a man, a place, and a moment. Um, the reason that uh, Luther went to Wittenberg as an ambitious The equivalent, really, as a young university, Don, um, is because Wittenberg had been turned into an ambitious new university. It was the equivalent of a plate-glass university of the 1970s. You had the elector, uh, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, who wanted to have his own university. And, of course, when he got his own university, it had to have all the latest mod cons. So it's given a printing press. It is equipped with a highly skilled painter because you don't only... In other words, they're thinking in terms of the sun. They don't just want printing, they want images. And along comes Luther. And Luther finds, in other words, astonishingly, every single facility he could possibly have needed. So those are the circumstances being right. But equally, Luther is downright peculiar. He has a courage. He has an oddity. He has a force of personality. He has a combination of a high, supremely high intelligence on the one hand and a total brutal earthy populism on the other. It's one of the things that we see as so violently disturbing now. When you get a movement which, in one sense, aspires to high intellectualism but also taps into the deepest, darkest and dirtiest aspects of human nature, which I'm afraid the Reformation does. Um, uh, So we have Luther then. I, I think the clue to him, finally, is the violence of his temperament. He is a man of perpetually, barely suppressed violence. Um, And it's the power of his disgust at what he finds that the Roman church is doing which powers it. And lots of people were disgusted. Um, People like Erasmus were disgusted. Thomas More were disgusted. But with Luther, it's like a furnace. It's, It's like a blast furnace. There's something molten about the fury uh, and the concentrated force. If you can, you can, I know you can concentrate heat with a laser. Mm -hmm. It's intense heat concentrated by this laser of intelligence. But of course, again, the wider circumstances are right. Um, Luther's entire, as it were, starting point is What's going on now with the Catholic Church, the whole business of indulgences, the sale of what amounts to the sale of paradise, the sale of salvation, is not what Jesus said. He is like one of these people that goes around knocking on your door, telling you what Jesus said, and he believes it. And, of course, he has got a means by which he thinks. He can tap directly into it. Erasmus has just finished editing and publishing, and most of the work is done in Cambridge here in England with the assistance of Cuthbert Tunstall, the future bishop of Durham. He's just finished, finished editing the Greek New Testament, accompanied with a kind of explanatory Latin translation, And Luther is convinced that when he reads that, he is reading the actual word of Jesus. And that word speaks to him directly, and he's determined to communicate that word directly. And of course, his genius is to realise, yes, he can do it as a university teacher. Yes, he can do it within the context of the university. But above all, he can do it through printing. And he can do it through illustrated printing and he can do it in German. He breaks out from the academic convention that you conduct learned discourse in Latin and he starts to do it in German. And this turns him from a marginal academic figure, a quarrelsome friar, suddenly and overnight into literally the focus of German politics. Remember, within 10 years of Luther, half of Germany is Lutheran.
1: That's the scale of it. And so Luther was clearly an incredible, remarkable man. Awful man. Awful man. um, And and I think,
2: again, one of the things I tried to bring out in this film is the complete dualism of it all the fact that extraordinarily high and noble motives are involved and unspeakably horrible things are done. Remember, the Reformation, we deliberately make this comparison running throughout with ISIS. It's a work of passionate destruction. For Luther, the entire apparatus of medieval faith, the whole structure of the Catholic Church, the patterns of Catholic belief, of ceremony, of almost Everything were filthy. They were idolatrous. He believes in the second commandment: "Thou shalt have no graven image." Um, he's less passionate about it than some other people become, but there is this element of destruction. He also, of course, invokes violent German nationalism, antisemitisms, xenophobia.
1: Not pretty. (laughs) Why do you think his words fell on such fertile ground? Could the Reformation have happened, say, a century earlier, or was there something about either the state of Europe or the Catholic Church at this point that meant that Luther's ideas well, It, it, it did, in one sense. It did happen a century earlier. Uh, that's exactly what the
2: Hussites were about uh, in Bohemia, and Luther is very much aware of that parallel, and that was a double movement uh, in, in Bohemia. It had two, two feet and one in England with Wycliffeism, and in all sorts of ways it was Astonishingly similar, it elevated the scripture in the native tongue, it was highly sceptical about the uh, role of the church, it deeply disapproved of the wealth and the power of the church, but it didn't have printing. In the same way, there'd been earlier renaissances uh, than than the one that uh, Erasmus is such a central figure in, but they peter out because there isn't printing. Some I think some of the most interesting scenes um, in that film are when we discuss, myself and my academic colleague, when we discuss printing. And he points out that printing, although it's, it's well established, it's 50 or 60 years old by the time of Luther, was very much a minority luxury product. Again, we get this wrong. We would imagine that when they start printing, they go for really simple, basic stuff. Not a bit. They go for three-color printing because they're trying to reproduce manuscripts. Well, you can't do that. They don't have the technology to do it. And it's Luther who, in a sense, rescues printing because what he comes up with, they look just like the sun. For me, one of the moments of absolute revelation, I've been singing the praises of of the team, of the director and his assistant. Um, They got me facsimiles in the church in Wittenberg uh, of the great Lutheran works, things like the address to the Christian ability of the German nation. And I knew about the existence, of course I knew. I knew about the contents of them. Uh, But I tended to assume they were books. And then these things that looked like a cheap, cheap pamphlets were put down beside me this is what he was able to do he was to take these huge ideas to reduce them to an extraordinarily simple core of argument vividly expressed in the native language with exactly what a good journalist does with lots of stories a bit of dirt some gossip excitement And this, of course, is wonderful. Printers absolutely adore it. You can rip this stuff off. It sells like hotcakes. It's easy to produce. And do you see what I mean? The whole thing becomes whether one would use the word virtue, I'm not sure, but it comes a virtuous cycle. Um, You get much, much larger editions than you'd ever been able to have before, which means, of course, you can spend more money on equipment, which improves technical quality. You use illustration very heavily and so on and so on and so on. And I think this is the real key. that the The point that I made at the beginning, the instruments are available to him. There's also, I think, on the other side of the story, there is that sense of the absolutely overweening indulgence of the Renaissance papacy. The, the thing, remember, that triggers it, and it's, it's one of the things I try to get in the film, why we have the extravagance, which certainly was, of filming in Rome, which is to juxtapose what they were doing in Rome with the feel of Germany or England at this point. The indulgences, um, the the selling of salvation that Luther was furious about, um, was to finance St Peter's. We forget Michelangelo is the exact contemporary of Luther. And in Italy, you have these works of sublime, extravagant beauty paid for out of illegitimately wrung pennies from German peasants. And there is this extremity of contrast, which I think again fed Luther very, very powerfully. And the um again the the way in which the continued disintegration of the central power of the German Emperor meant that each individual state, and he was again very fortunate in his elector in Frederick the Wise, immensely ambitious, shrewd, calculating, in every way the opposite of Luther. Um, uh, whereas Luther has got this, really, this ebullience, this drive. Here is a man who thinks, is slow, is cautious Extends a protecting arm, is clearly fascinated to have this firework. Frederick also had, a, ironically, an enormous collection of relics acquired at vast expense. And Luther was a kind of intellectual relic, you know, he was a star reliquary, he was this precious oddity
1: that he'd acquired, and he's not going to let anybody else break it. The Catholic Church at this point was hugely powerful. So once they become aware of Luther and clearly strongly opposed his ideas, why weren't they able to just stamp it out completely? Well, the church is powerful and not
2: powerful. The church has, or it has a tiny amount of actual force at its command, but essentially it has to operate in cooperation with secular authorities. When it came to arresting somebody. Um, The only way that it could arrest would be if what was called the secular arm, that is, the German emperor or one of the German princes did it. Now, when we look at the the earlier case of the Hussites um, and Jan Hus 100 years earlier, the emperor of the time had broken his safe conduct. He had decided that Hus was so dangerous that although he'd been given a safe conduct, he would break it. The emperor Charles V doesn't. And in the political circumstances of the time, he couldn't. Because remember, you've also got these programs one can't do everything. But the young Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, is newly elected. When he's confronted with this huge problem of Luther, he's, he's a boy. He's 18. He's also emerged from an immensely conflicted election in which the rival candidates included Henry VIII, And Francis I, and vast amounts of money had been poured into it. And three guesses who the power broker had been Frederick the Wise, the Elector of Saxony. So you can just see the debts and the mutual obligations. And the church is having to fight through that, it's having to fight at a distance. And there is this immensely powerful sense of regionality and localism, which is still, of course, one of the great keys to Germany. Germany save for those brief attempts under the, the Second Reich, under under the, uh, the, the the late 19th century German Empire and Bismarck, and again under Hitler, Germany has never been centralised. So power is localised. It's, it's a patchwork. It's a mosaic of different rival jurisdictions. And Luther, good luck, and above all the protection of Frederick the
1: Wise, is protected, floats. And one thing that came out from watching the programme is the the violence that came in the wake of the Reformation. Do you think that's an aspect that's been downplayed in our popular understanding of what happened? We think it's just this theological debate. I I
2: think that what we've done, we've deliberately disinfected the Reformation. The Reformation is profoundly Bloodily violent, I and mean, it leads very quickly to the German peasant revolt. It leads to Munster, uh, which you know they are literally the equivalents of ISIS. They're complete loons, um, and and both both monstrously violent in itself, and even more hideously violent in its suppression. It leads to a century and a half of. Probably the most, as it were, man for man, the most violent and bloody war that Europe had ever known, culminating in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. You get England again, where it's state directed. You get the destruction which makes, you know, what Isis did in Palmyra look a child's picnic. 600 monasteries, buildings on the same scale as Westminster Abbey or York Minster. The great bulk of them are demolished, are stripped, their treasures seized, incomparable treasuries of music, of vestments, of gold, of silver, of jewels, and, and of course, also profound patterns of belief ruptured. I mean, do we, I know, how can one begin to cover it? One, one can't. But the work of people like Eamon Duffy looking at just how, certainly in England, where the Reformation is very much imposed from above uh, how profoundly unpopular it was. Germany, it's different, Luther is a populist and there is a very, very powerful groundswell for the Reformation in a country like England. It's, in a sense, accidental. Again, as the film points out, Henry VIII begins as the leader of the counterattack on Luther. He is the noblest, the, the paragon of Catholic virtue, gets the reward of the title of defender of the faith and all the rest of it. And it's, and it's only on literally the day that he pledges to Marianne Boleyn, that everything just revolves. It's like one of those, one of those weather meds you know, going from wet to dry. Um, everything swings around. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: There's often a debate about the Reformation in England to what extent it purely came down to Henry's marital troubles. Would you say that without that, England would probably still be Catholic today?
2: The Reformation, as it happens, is entirely due to uh, Henry's marital problems. It's totally top-down nature. The extraordinary power uh, that the king assumes over the church. The remember, the the fundamental legacy of the, the first Reformation, Henry VIII's Reformation in England, is making the church royal. It's the royal supremacy, the royal headship over the church, which I think then becomes the dynamic. Of religious change in England. Again, we've tended very much to look at it the other way around. We, we, we all the time, you know, there's a democratic myth in history. We really want to believe it's all about popularity, uh, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century. Historians were determined to find the fact that the Reformation was popular, it was part of our national Protestant myth, and so on. Uh, all of which, I think, resulted in acts of very significant self-deception, very significant self-deception. And we are now much more aware than we were, as I said, of the violence, of the destructiveness, of the unpopularity. But that, again, it does not deny the nobility of ambition of much of it. A figure like Tyndale, his passionate belief in the gospel, in the language which the ploughman could understand, um, the Consequence of the fact that uh, he is head and shoulders above Luther when it comes to a stylist, Um, this obscure, not even an Oxford academic, he didn't make it, Um, this obscure priest turns out to be one of the greatest writers of English ever. And in many ways transforms English from an awkward and rather clumsy language and gives it this astonishing force, power, combination of dignity and simplicity, those wonderful phrases of his translation of the Bible, in the twinkling of an eye, little things that just catch the mind Mm -hmm. at the same time as an immense rhetorical power which can communicate the full message of the Gospels in beauty and in terror. He's, he's, He's astonishing. And that's genuinely noble. That's the great creative side of the reformation in england that although in many ways the reformation in england i think is the it's the death of most of the visual arts in england they have to be reinvented under the influence of italy
1: mm.
2: in the 18th and 19th centuries what it does, it powers English as a language and as a literature. It's the thing that really turns us um, into the land of Shakespeare, um, that gives English, uh, which had been a totally marginal language, gives it the not only the ability but the aspiration. Because again, I think, as in Germany with Luther, um, Luther's Reformation is part of a process of... National re-identification of powerful nationalism. In Germany, of course, it doesn't pan out um, as a sense of nationhood. The political structures were wrong, uh, though, of course, it feeds into the terrible traditions of anti-Semitism and so on. But in England, it does. The way in which England emerges under Henry VIII as a pariah state powers the whole sense of English identity and English aggression. Um, the ending of the film, you're a step away from empire, that extraordinary sense. And it's the speed with which it all develops. And the, the way in which you get ideological changes on the one hand and real physical changes with the dissolution of the monasteries, the confiscation of so much church wealth. I mean, Henry is literally able to turn England into a defensible island, something that's never happened before. You can fortify it. You can create a new kind of navy. You, as it were, define yourself against Europe. Dare one say it, the first Brexit.
1: And that's something that came up in the programme. You make this comparison between Brexit, which is clearly dominating the agenda nowadays, how far do you think that comparison can be taken? What similarities do you see with what happened there and what are happening today?
2: I think the
1: parallels are
2: it's almost difficult not as it were to stop them. Um, the Reformation is taking a country. England which had been at the heart of, of the international enterprise of Christendom and the Catholic Church for a thousand years, which puts the 40 odd that we've been in the European Union uh, into into perspective uh, mm-hmm. that remember England was unique in that it's actually been converted to Roman Christianity directly by Rome mm-hmm. by by a mission sent by Pope Gregory the Great headed by St. Augustine, which is why Canterbury is as near as possible to Dover. Um, You can see, they literally just hopped over the Channel, bringing this Christian variant with them. Um, And um, it was absolutely at the centre of European Christendom. Oxford was one of the great universities of Western Europe. There was this immensely close connection. Uh, For most of the Middle Ages, we are part of a greater France. Remember, the Channel is not a barrier, The channels are means of communication. We're usually not part simply of a cross-channel ecclesiastical structure. We're normally part of a cross-channel political structure. Um, And Henry ruptures all that. The church is also strikingly similar to the EU. It's above all a system of law. It's a system of jurisdiction. Um, It, again... It is a self-consciously international one. It has a particular focus, a a, a locus, a capital in Rome. It's the universal court of appeal. Why else does Henry have to take his marriage there? Just like the ECJ, you know. Um, And so the the parallels are truly astonishing. And uh, they come out. most strongly uh, in the film when we talk about the trial of Thomas More. I mean, More in the trial raises all the issues which we have been debating. It's the question, is the English Parliament sufficient to itself or isn't it? The answer in More's view, he's a complete Ramona, no, it's not. The answer in Henry VIII and the rest of the political establishment is,
1: yes, it is. You know, he's a crown Nigel Farage so the interesting thing about England is it doesn't go fully Protestant. So how difficult was it to be somebody living in England under this period where you can't not necessarily safe as a Catholic or a Protestant, how did people navigate that situation?
2: Well, I think the most important thing to remember, though all of these terrible books aren't there on remember the key to Shakespeare is that his grandfather was a Roman Catholic or he might have been a Roman Catholic. The answer is everybody's grandfather had been a Roman Catholic. Mm. England was a country that committed national apostasy about three times. You swap religion. At least you swap official religion. I suspect most people coped by doing what they were told. Uh, You get a handful of brave souls who don't. And I think it was a period in which profound certainties suddenly go into the dustbin. It's been rather impressively argued, and I've been interested to see it. I've been saying it for a long time, but I've been seeing it's been picked up in literary discourse. I think the Reformation is also the origin of the peculiar importance of nostalgia in England, the the great. Shakespeare's sonnet, Colbert ruined choirs, when he compares his own physical decay and grey hair uh, to the ruined choirs of a monastery. England is dotted with ruins in the 16th century. London is a ruin. It had been surrounded by these vast monastic buildings and they're just readapting them. So again, Oxford and Cambridge. There's a slow process in the 16th century in which these former great Franciscan and Dominican priories are adapted into uh, into colleges. But in the immediate aftermath of the Reformation, they're ruins. Can you imagine? It's, it's an extraordinary period. Um, you get these acts of public destruction of the things that have been most precious you know you get the public exposure of relics saint statues miracle working statues of the christ that you'll have fallen down and worshiped are then publicly exhibited and made objects of ridicule you know uh, in that sense it's as in so many others, I think. The 16th century is very much like our own. It's this period. There's a media revolution, the revolution of printing. There's a visual revolution in the visual arts. There is this um, astonishing repeated reversals and undermining of values and attempts at the imposition of new ones. What it was to be a Christian, the absolutely central question. They Most of them really do believe there is an afterlife. You know, the image in the church, as we... Talk about the image in a church. is not, you know, the nice, cuddly Jeremy Corbyn Christ. It really ain't. It's Christ Pantocrator. It's Christ, the awe-inspiring, terrifying judge with those eyes going down at you and a handful of the saved on one side and the legion of the damned on the other. So people are profoundly aware of this. But suddenly they're told that everything that they were doing to be saved is going to make them damned. And they have got to do something completely different. It makes the possibility of of an English Venezuela seem quite modest in comparison.
1: (laughs) You're, again, drawing quite a lot of parallels with today, and clearly the Reformation was a very traumatic experience. Can you see any lessons from what's happening to England and Britain today in what happened to the Reformation? I I think lessons are the
2: dangerous thing. Um, uh, I always say the reason that people don't learn any lessons from history is the reason that young people don't learn from the experience of their parents. We've all got to make our own mistakes. But I certainly think that there are, in one sense, there there, there are, if you like, morals to be drawn. I mean, one of the most astonishing is how on earth was Henry VIII able to do it with minimal, and there's one significant rebellion. But to carry out change of that order... It's conventional now. The historiography focuses on the wives, and I've had a share in that, and on the ministers. But I think the really big question has to be, have we powerfully underestimated Henry VIII himself as a political operator? And it's, I mean, let's just take a case, which is Henry in 1529, with the failure of the divorce uh, the fact that, of the attempt at getting the divorce from Rome. The policy on which he's invested the whole of his public reputation at home and abroad, vast amounts of money, um, uh, has his personal happiness, has suddenly collapsed. In other words, a little bit like our waking up and finding that we voted Brexit. Look at the mess in terms of policy that we've made since then. What does Henry do? he pauses. He sets up a think tank. He reforms the Royal Library. He gets researchers going. He thinks. And it's only once he's come up with what he thinks of a satisfactory strategy that he tries to do something. Now, there it's the contrast which is so violent. And at a time when, you know, we've been taught to regard the man in charge as tempestuous, babyish, self-indulgent, Donald Trump-like. Well, there are aspects of Henry that were, but when it came to the pursuit of a strategic goal, the achieving of it, the relations of ends and means... I think it would be difficult to have operated more impressively. The reason it takes so long, of course, is, first of all, you've got to come up uh, with um, acceptable reasons for, A, the divorce, and, B, Henry's headship of the church, and then you've got to get it through Parliament. You see, see, it's exactly the same issue as with Brexit. You've, You've got to get this extraordinary thing through a fractious, difficult, and divided assembly. And... They give themselves time. Remember, the divorce from the day in which Henry and Anne pledged to marry, the first of January fifteen twenty seven, to actually getting it is
1: just short of six years. Before you started this project, did you already have these
2: parallels in mind? Yes. 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 I've been. I mean, I've been arguing. I'm not an expert in religious history, and please, I do want to make my my interests are primarily, you know, political and social, indeed, artistic. Uh, But obviously. You have to be interested in religion if you are studying the 16th century, um, and it struck me that this was a wonderful opportunity, um, you know, taking the big fact of the of the Lutheran anniversary, uh, to try to raise some of these things within a relatively short compass, and um, and doing it with a very very clear focus. Um, and what I liked about the way the program structured itself was the way in which it has a really powerful, simple narrative. there There is this explosion with Luther. Uh, There is the fact that England, you know, heroic, led by its king, weak and resistant. And then suddenly everything turns on a pin's head. And again, this is something that I, I I am very keen to communicate in history. We tend to be believers in, you know, unconsciously, we're believers in gradualism. Actually, I think big historical change generally happens immeasurably quickly. There are these sudden, if you like um, John Prescott's tectonic plates, you know, there are these sudden, huge, huge upheaval moments. Um, And you can see very clearly that Henry's decision to part with Catherine and to marry Anne is one of them. I mean, before that, who is Henry aligned with? The people uh, in the great campaign and the very, very successful campaign against Luther, it's led by Thomas More. The intellectual powerhouse of it is John Fisher. Um, Henry is operating with these people. They're the ones who advise him on his book against Luther. Fisher is Henry's favourite preacher. He delivers the great sermons at the book burnings at St Paul's. And then suddenly the whole thing literally turns on the pin. And from being in the highest of favour, they go into outer darkness, imprisonment and eventually execution. There is just this extraordinary reversal.
1: I think I've been through all the questions I was going to ask you. Is there anything else you think we should cover? No, I think that that we haven't done yet. I think, uh, uh, and
2: again, I, I would like to make the point and make it strongly. I hope that the modern parallels are not intrusive. I was very aware we we had that opening in which we used some of the nastier moments from the ISIS tapes. Because remember, all these horrible methods of public execution, burnings alive, disembowelings and whatever, I'm afraid we did them all 500 years ago. What I want to do with this above all, and I am an atheist and I'm not a doubting atheist, We have become contemptuous of the force of religion. We must remember, those of us who are atheists in an essentially atheistical, or at least a society that is casual about religion, in all of this vulgarity about sky fairies. We are the minority. Most people now and most human beings in recorded history have believed. We must recognise the power of this thing especially if we don't like it. And what I was trying to do with this programme is to communicate that power and the, the way in which it has shaped and moulded our own civilization. Again, if one were doing it more seriously, if it were series rather than one programme, of course you'd be pointing out absolute fundamental differences. You'd be pointing out the difference of chronology. That Islam is 600 years younger than Christianity, which I would argue is why it's undergoing its torments now. You would point out, of course, that the relationship of the secular and the religious in Islam is radically different from Christianity, that Islam does not have that concept of the division between the two, uh, which Christ seems to be the essential creator of, you know, render unto Caesar, Paul, you know, honour the powers that be for the there of God, uh, all of which, of course, is what powers Henry VIII's domination of the church, not in Islam, and so on. But the echoes, I want them to be there, and I want them to disturb. I want them to make people feel really uncomfortable, hence that opening. So much history on television, even when it's about nasty and violent things, there's a kind of nice fairy tale, mm. nice bedtime story about the whole thing. It's a long way away, dear child. It's not going to hurt you there, there, there. We've got over all that, haven't we? We've got, you know, um, the, the, the welfare state and quantitative easing. There's nothing to worry about. I don't believe that. And hence the wish to disturb.
1: That was David Starkey. Reformation, Europe's Holy War, airs tomorrow, Tuesday the 3rd of October, on BBC2 at 9pm. And it will be available on BBC iPlayer afterwards. And you'll be able to read a written version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale later this month. Meanwhile, our October issue is currently in the shops, and contains pieces on the Knights Templar, Edward VIII's wartime service, Indians in Victorian Britain, and a whole lot more. Look out for our October issue now in all good newsagents and our many digital formats. Now before we go, here's a reminder that our History Weekend at Winchester is now just a few days away. With speakers including Dan Jones, Yanina Ramirez, David Olashogga and Michael Wood, it's an event that you won't want to miss. Some tickets are still available, so if you'd like to come along, head to historyweekend.com for more details of this and our later event in York. Okay, well that's about all for today, but please listen in again on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions.